Welcome to the Men in Lead podcast. What is up, my Sunlight Samurais? Today I have Mr. Stavros Masterogianis on the podcast to talk about all things diet, lifestyle, exercise, not exactly what to eat, but how to eat that makes you healthier, live longer, and help you to lose weight and keep it off. Mr. Stavros is a 20-year veteran in the weight loss field and the creator of the Live Your Way Thin system. Growing up in a Greek island surrounded by people who were thin, healthy, and commonly lived productive lives, well into their 90s, Stavros learned the five ancient secrets, unique insight on weight loss, nutrition, and longevity that very few weight loss experts know. Stavros graduated from Culinary Institute of America, and he used this prestigious training to teach audiences not only how to eat, but what delicious food to eat to help propel forward momentum in the weight loss process. Stavros insights also help to develop the habits necessary to sustain and maintain optimum weight. Stavros held two ACE certifications and has partnered with St. Jude Children's Hospital for the Get In Shape Challenge, among many other fitness events. He has years of extensive study and research on the topic of nutrition. Stavros is a sought-after presenter and consultant. In the description of this podcast, I will link to all of his socials medias, his website, and his book. His book is Fat No More, How to Lose Weight So It Stays Off for Life. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Stavros. How are you doing, sir? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So just to make exactly sure how to pronounce your name, is that Stra- Stavros? Yes, Stavros. That's cool. So you are originally from Greece. Um, till what age did you live there? I left Greece when I was uh, 15, 1987. But I, I was actually born with dual citizenships because my mother was although she was Greek, she was also American. So although I was born in Greece, I was born with I had both citizenships. So then we came back to the States and now I live in the United States in Connecticut. How do you enjoy Connecticut? Nice. I mean I prefer the beach, but it does have its benefits too. I mean I think every place has its good and bad. So if you in one area as might as well focus on what's good about it. And I mean, I go back to Greece almost every year, you know, so. What is your favorite, what is your favorite Greek dish? Oh, there's a lot. Um, frikase. <laughs> doesn't sound Greek, but it's actually a Greek dish. It's a lamb with um, romaine lettuce. And I, do you, have you heard the term avgolemono? It's like an egg, you use egg to thicken the, the soup with. It's like, it's a casserole dish with egg and lemon. It's uh, one of my many favorite ones. As a matter of fact, I'm in the process of recreating all my mother's recipes because my father, a few years back, he died all of a sudden. Both of my parents are really good cooks. My father was an excellent cook. And uh, I always kept saying every time I go back to Greece, oh, I'm going to sit down with my father, I'm going to write down all the recipes. And then all of a sudden he dies and we lost all these great recipes. So I'm like, you know something? I need to start writing down recipes because they're going to get lost over generations, you know? Yeah, is those also like family recipes? Yes, the family, exactly. I would say the Greek diet is predominantly a, a vegetarian type of diet. And uh, well, actually, we'll talk more about that because, you know, like the Mediterranean diet has gotten a lot of good press. But did you know the Mediterranean diet, when uh, and I've read a lot of research on it, they leave out some very important aspects of the diet, which are how we ate. For example, in, when, I, now, when I was raised there in the 70s and 80s, now, unfortunately, it's, a, it's as bad as any Western country, the diet, because unfortunately, you know, over time, it changed. Um, traditionally, in Greece, we did not eat breakfast. We only ate lunch and dinner. Breakfast, it was something we ate on the weekends. And yet, all the research, all these studies I've read in the Mediterranean diet, they always leave that part out. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the other thing we always did was the biggest meal, we always ate it at a time that we can rest afterwards. Like in other words, most of them was lunch, but we had like a three hour lunch break. So you went home, you ate, and then you took a nap, which helps digestion. It's actually really good for your health to rest after eating, which kind of goes counter to what I had learned in school here in nutrition, 
that you know you should try to eat no eat late at night don't eat and go to sleep well come to find out that's actually one of the great things to do for digestion obviously not stuff yourself and go to sleep but eat to be satisfied but then resting aids digestion that's very interesting that you talk about the time restricted feeding and honestly to me it never made sense why people would do that if they had food available do you perhaps know why they did that do do what the time restricted feeding increase oh time restricted oh because number one the um we didn't have as much food i mean that helps but also i think instinctively people knew because to me, to me i know like when i eat uh afterwards i want to take a nap so again when i took nutrition in school here i mean i i was taught that breakfast the most important meal of the day and it was pushed a lot but then my mother i was talking to her one day she's like why are you telling your clients to have breakfast when in Greece, did you eat breakfast? I go, no. Go, did the adults eat breakfast? No. Usually had coffee and then went to work, which by the way, saves you time too, which is kind of nice. You know, you get up, you have your coffee, you go to work. Now, and then, so it raised the question like, well, then why are we teaching breakfast the most important meal of the day? Well, if you look at the studies that support the idea of breakfast, you'll notice two things. One, are paid by cereal companies. Two, they are observational studies, most of them. And I, I'm not the only one who actually realized that there was a, a famous study. Uh, it was a professor from the state of Alabama that he looked at um, 94 studies from 1992 to 2010, I believe, if I remember correctly. And he looked at all these breakfast studies that support the idea of breakfast. And he found out that 99% of them are all observational studies, meaning they, there was no control group. They just looked at a whole bunch of people. The people that ate breakfast were healthier than people did not eat breakfast and automatically assumed it was breakfast that made the difference. Well, come to find out, if you look at how the human body works, there's no real reason. Again, for the, we talk about the average, obviously. There's always exceptions. So when I throw that out, there's always exceptions. But for the average person, when they first wake up in the morning, uh, are you familiar with the hormone cortisol? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the stress hormone. Did you know naturally that hormone goes up in the morning for 76% of the population? The reason is it gets them ready for action. So that hormone helps the body release fat from the fat cells into the bloodstream for energy. That's where your energy comes from. But by eating breakfast, you stop the process and you force the body to utilize sugar and whatever you ate. But the body didn't need that food because you already, most of us, I mean, unless you're, you know, uh, uh, you have no fat on you, which then it's not healthy anyway. But most of us have enough fat on us to get the day going. But because I did not eat in the morning, because remember, digest takes a lot of energy. I don't need to waste energy digesting food. So I actually have more energy by not eating breakfast than eating breakfast. One little quick note there. Obviously, if you're used to eating breakfast, the first time you skip it, you're not going to feel too well. I can tell you that right now. You, you might go through some withdrawal and stuff. Um, but, you know, personally, I only eat breakfast on the week, like on, on Sundays. Like if my daughter made something, I'll eat it. Am I hungry? Not really. But, you know, he, perfectionism is a terrible thing too. I believe in the 80-20. If 80% of the time you can do the right thing, 20% of the time, your body will forgive you. But I think in the old countries, the reason that they, they were eating like that because we didn't have the amount of junk food and snacks that we do today. Yeah, that was the same thing. When I was in college, I was also doing intermittent fasting and I was lean back then. And then yeah. actually, when I started working, making money and I could have more money to buy food. Yeah. And, and again, I tried intermittent fasting. Funny enough, it didn't work for me. And I was like, so what was going on? It's like, oh, wait, I was poor, so I couldn't afford food. So I was automatically calorie restricting. So um, yes. yep. my, my take on it is, uh, but before I give my take on it, what were you eating in the morning that was making you feel tired? Well, I used to eat, when I used to eat breakfast, I used to eat like, you know, cereal. Uh, you know, sometimes if I, you know, used to work, I used to work at a diner, I would have like bacon and eggs and I would eat the typical breakfast. I mean, sometimes like uh, oatmeal. Uh, there's another Greek dish, uh, it's called, um, uh, not this, like tiropita, it's like a cheese pie. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite things was uh, when I 
good degrees on vacation is cheese pie with Coke. Yeah. It, it, strange combination. But I used to love that. Um, but, you know, it's like the, a lot of the typical breakfast stuff. Uh, but I found now that I don't eat, I have more energy than I ever did before. Now, it did take a little time again. It, they, if you're used to eating breakfast, it's going to take a little time to get used to it. You're not going to be able to um, just go cold turkey. Have you ever found that in your case, uh, that some foods make you tired in the morning and other foods don't? Yes, I, I always tell people, if you must eat during the day, eat very light, like fruits, vegetables probably will be your best bet. Uh, I think um, uh, Fit for Life, if I remember correctly, he was recommending like fruits during the day. And I kind of agree with that. If you must eat during the day, uh, would you have to function? You want to eat food that very easy on the digestion. Because if you eat any kind of meat, anything that's heavy, requires a lot more energy, which is going to make you feel tired. So I always say fruits, vegetables is your best bet during the day. Like for me, I always eat, well, now I, most of the time I eat only once a day anyway. I only eat dinner. And I, I, by the way, I didn't set out to eat that way. My philosophy was like, I was trying to replicate the way I was raised in Greece because when I lived there, thin was the norm. Cancer was a rare disease. And uh, people live long, healthy lives, like in the 90s and the 100s, and they didn't suffer any of the uh, diseases that we associate with older people. So I was trying to replicate that, to eat lunch and dinner. But one of my rules was I had to make sure I was hungry before I ate. And that's something we never, do you ever stop and ask yourself before you eat, am I hungry or am I eating just because it's lunchtime or somebody offered me food? And we'll find most of the time we eat because the food is there. Yeah, we, that's why we often overeat. Yeah, because we just have this available. We don't really question ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I've definitely found like in the morning um, when I was eating oats and bread and like starches and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I would get hypoglycemia like 30 minutes after. So I was like, yeah. I eat my meal 30 minutes later. I'm so <laughs> tired. I couldn't like, I just have to go sit down. I was so tired. But then if I have, for example, like a milkshake, so I have milk and I have some fruit and some uh, honey. That's when I have the best mornings. I have the best energy and I can really get stuff done. Um, and my take on it is that, yes, cortisol rises in the morning. It spikes usually within 30 minutes after waking. Um, and it's meant to wake you up, as you mentioned. Now, some yeah. people don't really have that natural rhythm in cortisol. Um, so they don't yeah. really feel as alert. But that's because they don't, in my opinion, that's because they don't do the things that's necessary to entrain their circadian rhythm uh, properly. Yes. So with a proper spike, you will wake up feeling great. But my take on it is that, okay, cortisol has done its job. Now I would rather focus on improving my testosterone to cortisol ratio and have some yeah. carbohydrates <laughs> like honey and milk. Um, because ultimately the testosterone to cortisol ratio is most important to ensure that you feel good. It's anti-depression, anti-anxiety, it improves your insulin sensitivity. It helps with anabolism in general. And for me, I'll, uh, at least, I feel like it gives me the better energy to do what I need to do. Whereas if yeah. I fast, I almost feels like, uh, my, I have a, a different kind of energy, but I feel more agitated and I feel more yeah. hangry. Although I don't necessarily feel hungry, my brain yeah. is hangry in a sense. Yes, I, I found that a lot of people would do go through that. Uh, you just, if you stay long enough, eventually that feeling goes away. Uh, but again, I, I'm, always, I'm a big believer that, you know something, if you're doing something, and for you, you feel great, by all means, continue doing it. And that's what I always tell people that we we'll have to find something that really works in your lifestyle and the way you are. Overall, I, said, I, I set up to eat like twice a day. And I used to teach like, you know, to eat breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, but I found that over time, because one of the habits I teach was about being hungry, true hungry, not, not cravings. And I found that I stopped being hungry for lunch and I slowly found that I, I kept pushing my lunch later and later and later. And I got, I pushed it so late and then it was interfering with my dinner because I, you know, at home at, at, at dinner time, I want to be home eating with my family. I want to be hungry. And eventually I'm like thinking, what happens if I skip lunch and I stop skipping it? And I never went back like Monday to usually Monday to Thursday, Fridays, I might eat lunch and on weekends I do whatever, you know, if I go to an event, I'll eat. But I found that this has worked for me really well. 
Uh, and but I do have clients that eat during the day. When the client wants to eat, I always tell them to eat something light, something that's easily digestible. Meat, I always tell people that try to leave it for the evening for average, obviously, because if you have a if you have a three-hour lunch break, I don't know if you guys get three-hour lunch breaks. I don't know, do they give you no? Well, since I work for well, myself, I do, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Most of us, in the lunchtime, most companies give like, no, you have 30 minutes to eat. And that includes getting to the restaurant. Yeah. So I, we always tell people, because at the lunchtime, we have to eat in a hurry. We don't have time to rest. Try to leave them meat uh, at night. Now, the reason, by the way, I do push that people try to have a 16-hour break, like similar to intermittent fasting, by the way, uh, between food. It's not necessarily for just for the weight loss. To me, it's a nice side benefit. It's the, the benefits that you that derive from that. Like, uh, are you familiar with the term uh, autophagy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, the body, it's a Greek word, by the way, you know, and it means, you know, to eat yourself. Well, the body, by having prolonged breaks from food, goes into, you can call it cleansing mode, whatever you want to call it, that goes within to find the protein that it needs. But the protein... See, in school, I was taught that, oh, it's going to eat up your muscles. Well, come to find out, that's not true. First, the body's going to use a protein that doesn't need, like misfolded proteins, which is the precursor to most mental diseases, uh, mutated and dysfunctional cells, which is the precursor to most cancers. So in the body, by recycling those things, it doesn't allow it to accumulate, which means you lower your chance of developing uh, any mental diseases, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, and cancers. As a matter of fact, actually, I don't know, are you familiar with the island Ikaria? It's a Greek island. No. It's considered one of the blue zones. Have you heard the term blue zones? Yeah, it's yeah. areas that people live very long life. Ikaria, that's the way, by the way, I was raised. I was raised on an island. We ate the same way that Ikaria eats today. Ikaria, because it's so cut off from the mainland of Greece, it's an island in the middle of nowhere. Uh, people were able to maintain their habits. Now, the population at one third of it's over the age of 90. Now, in the United States, 40% uh, of the population over the age of 70 have some form of dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, some kind of brain problem. On that island, although one third of the population is over the age of 90, zero doesn't exist. How can that be? And in my home city, it was the same way. We didn't have any of those diseases because we, didn't, we took regular six-hour breaks from food. And that's why, to me, I'm a big believer that you have to do it every single day, by the way. But I do believe that the human body needs a break from food. We need, just like exercising, you know, you need to rest. If you're exercising every single day, you know, for hours at a time, and you never rest, what will happen to your body? Right? Yeah. It's going to break down. Well, same thing. Food is important for to building muscle and everything else, but... If you never take a break from food, the body will also break down. It needs time to rest. Yeah. Have you heard of the term excessive autophagy? Excessive autophagy. Oh, no, I mean, I can't figure what it is, but I never really heard that big concern about it. Tell me about it. So you, you do get a condition where there is excessive autophagy and the whole process of autophagy do actually require ATP and energy for autophagy to happen properly. So this is, again, where my take is like, um, let's say you sleep and you sleep at um, the whole process, like going to bed and waking up, that whole process is about 10 hours. You know, I don't think anyone should be eating like too close to bed or right after waking, like it says 10 hours. So yeah. in that time, if your sleep is optimal, your, your stress hormones is low, all the good hormones is working as it should, you're not having inflammation, your autophagy should be working as it should. Like it should do all the jobs it should be doing. Now, if someone have inflammation they will have more damage so they might need more autophagy yeah. um, but at the end of the day you do get dysfunctional autophagy so certain hormones like testosterone and thyroid hormone t3 is actually responsible for proper autophagy so that's why by eating in the morning for me that's why you, you automatically change the testosterone to cortisol ratio and by having some carbohydrates in the diet you actually in, enhance the conversion of t4 to t3 so the testosterone and T3 will then make sure you clear up those, um, you know, the debris, debris, so to speak, properly. Yeah. So you, you get the overnight autophagy, but autophagy or cellular turnover is always happening, even in a fed state. It's, it's never just like you have to fast to, to, yes, uh, to yes. get autophagy. I, yeah, it just so, speeds up. 
So this is this yin and yang between like the autophagy yes. and the mTOR and the IGF-1. So my, my question to you is like, you, you mentioned like your hunger started to decline more and more the more you did this. So my question yeah. is, um, do you feel like that it perhaps is a concern? Because I know that older people, their appetite do decrease, they don't eat enough food and they might become overly catabolic. No, actually, to be honest with you, I would have been concerned if my strength was going down or if my energy went down and the opposite has happened is like I feel more energetic now. Actually, I just turned 50 two days ago. Uh, I feel more energy now than I ever did before. And also part of the reason why I've become a big believer is because, again, I studied healthy regions, including the one I was raised on. And I found out that on average in healthy regions, people eat only once or twice. As a matter of fact, these tribes in Africa, which they have none of the Western diseases. And on average, they eat actually five times a week. They eat a lot less than, than, than we do. And I agree what you said in the beginning that as our income goes up, so are, does our food. But our need for food hasn't increased just because now we have the extra money to spend on it. And I found that a lot of the eating that we do is for entertainment purposes, mainly not instead of eating because I really need the food. Now, I tell people that the average, I think if you eat twice a day, I think for most people works really well, but the key is that you listen to your body. And so far I go by, I really pay attention. If I saw that my strength was going down, most likely I wouldn't have done it. But my strength had actually continued going up. My energy is, it's much higher. And I feel like, like that, I felt better than I did when I was 30. I'm really happy for you. Do you feel like there is a perfect diet? No. I think that perfect diet. I think there is a variance from person to person and because it's based on where you were raised. For example, if you look at uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, the body has adapted to drinking milk, for instance. As a matter of fact, the lactose intolerant people are the normal people because as you know, as adults, we lose the enzyme that can digest uh, uh, milk protein. That's used to happen. Now, a lot of African countries, that's what happens. That's why a lot of uh, uh, people from Africa cannot digest milk as adults. Scandinavian countries, because they used to drink a lot of milk and a lot of dairy products, the body has adapted. So to me, as far as the perfect diet, there are some general rules for that thing everybody can follow, but there are... Um, variations to some people do better with certain foods than others i think based on your ancestors where you were raised on but the three i call the three habits i think everybody can benefit from is the the 16 hour habit in other words take regular breaks from food they eat only when truly hungry to me i'm a very big believer in that, listening to your body and it varies a little bit from person to person and the third one is to learn to eat slowly and mindfully and stop eating when you satisfy your hunger. But how many of us really eat slow enough to even know when you're full, right? We eat because there's food in front of us and we never stop eating until all the food in front of us is gone. Yeah. And I find actually uh, 100% of my clients that follow those three habits without even having touched what they were eating, lose weight and improve their health. Obviously, if they're watching what they're eating too, it would be even better. But the point I'm trying to make is how important those three habits are. Actually, did you ever see that documentary, Supersize Me? I did, yeah. Okay. In 2011, I did the same experiment. I went to McDonald's, uh, most McDonald's, this is Burger King too, by the way, uh, for two months. So for two months, I was eating cheeseburgers, French fries, and Coke. Uh, I didn't, I went to the doctor. I had my blood work done, you know, blood pressure, all that good stuff. And I did it. Oh, the only difference was I followed those three habits I just told you about the 16 hours, eat only when hungry, eat slow and mindful and stop eating when it satisfy your hunger. After two months of eating, not the best food, nothing happened. Actually, my cholesterol went down 10 points and my weight went down three pounds, which is insignificant. The point I was trying to prove that the McDonald's is good. It's not good food. I was trying to prove that how you eat, which is something has been ignored by most nutritionists, is as important as what you eat. You see, most nutrition only focus on the what you eat 
and completely ignored to how you eat. And I don't know if you know, like traditionally, like Greece and Italy, part of our diet, it's a high carb diet. Like we eat a lot of bread, like bread with every meal, pasta, potatoes, rice. The question I have, how come those things never really bothered our weight or health? Where at least here, a lot of nutritionists are talking about that, <coughs> that, oh, those are high carb foods, they can cause to gain weight. How come in Greece we didn't have a weight problem? Well, because we only ate on average twice a day. And also we ate slow and mindful because, you know, we, we had an hour to eat our lunch, another two hours to rest afterwards. And we didn't woof our food down. So although some, we ate something that today a lot of people consider as fattening, we didn't have an effect. Why? Because we also looked at the how we ate. Yeah, what's your take on, since you did that experiment, you did some blood work as well. What's your take on like, you mentioned junk food, obviously it's not a good idea. Yeah. What's your take on like omega-6, the trans fats, the, the, that's uh, inflammatory in general, you know, it's highly refined. Well, the, are, are there things that you want to avoid? Yes, absolutely. But the, the big but is that a lot of people, when you tell them they cannot have something like junk food, for instance, right? It has a lot of bad stuff in them. But if the moment I tell you, though, you shouldn't have it, you want it even more. And it always backfires. So though I agree with you that, uh, especially the food in the United States is awful, the additives that they put in there, it's, it's terrible. Uh, but I found the way they approach junk food, actually the rule is make junk food special. That's, that's the... Well, I tell my clients, in other words, Monday to Friday, eat, oh. Monday to Friday, uh, eat no junk food, but on the weekends, you can have it all you want. What I found is once people start doing this, even on the weekends, they eat less junk food than, than before, but it happens naturally. So yes, I agree that, you know, what's in junk food in uh, the omega-6 and is not the greatest things, but I, I always say there's some room for um, some bad stuff in a diet. Yeah. I, I'm when, a realist. When someone comes to you for a nutrition advice, uh, basically you, you tell them the three guidelines, you know, eat slower, two meals, maybe have some fasting window. Yeah. What do you recommend those meals consist of? Oh, during the day, I always recommend that you eat a highly, like mainly vegetables, fruits if you like. But during the day, I always tell fruits and vegetables mainly. Some starches are okay. Uh, and if you eat meat, eat it at your dinner time. This for America, because most people here only have 30 minute break for lunch. And so dinner, if you any heavy food to be eaten at dinner time. Uh, I do believe we should have a day minimum of eating uh, like a vegan diet, like one day that you eat no meat at all. I, I personally find that as a good idea. And I base that opinion on the fact that look at all the longest living, healthiest regions around the world, all of them, with no exception, are eating a diet high in fruits and vegetables, low in meat. Now, the example that some people use as places they eat a lot of meat, like the Eskimos, and they're relatively, by the way, very healthy people. They don't have a lot of the problems that we have today. But if you look at Eskimos, or if you look at like the tribe in Africa, which I came up with the name, which they eat meat with every meal, but they only eat five times a week. So although they eat meat every meal, they don't eat that often. So overall, I find that cultures, they eat a lot of meat. They tend to eat less often than cultures. They eat less meat. They can eat more often because if you, in other words, you could eat five times a day if you're eating only fruits and vegetables. I, I think that you can still get into autophagy if you're eating only fruits and vegetables. But most of us don't just eat fruits and vegetables. We eat meat, we eat you know, a lot of starches, a lot of heavier foods, higher in fat. So would you say that meat in general can have a anti-longevity effect? Yes. Uh, if you look at the longest living cultures, they do not eat that much meat. And by the way, I'm not anti-meat because I like my steaks, don't get me wrong, but I think we eat way too much meat. And again, I reflect on my own upbringing. And when I lived in Greece, 
uh, we ate meat only once or twice a week. And maybe we ate fish one more time. We were really more of a vegetarian diet three to four days out of the week. We're really eating high. And then throughout the year, four times a year, uh, I'm Greek Orthodox, uh, Christian, we fast. And fasting for us is that you give up all animal products, all of them, like no butter, no milk, no uh, cheese, nothing. And we do that every uh, quarter of the year. Like we do it for Easter. We do it sometime in June. Which, by the way, I never knew about the June one. There's one in August and there's one before Christmas. And it's kind of interesting that how that was worked into the culture. And they did a study actually specifically on that. They, they took Greeks. They eat the typical Greek diet. The only difference was one group of Greeks followed the Orthodox practice of fasting and the other one did not. The people who, fat, who, who fasted the way that the Greek Orthodox recommends lived much longer and much healthier than the other group, although everything else was the same. Another interesting tradition that we have in Greece is you're not allowed to eat meat on Wednesdays and Fridays throughout the year. And again, they, I think a lot of traditions come out from the, somebody somehow realizes a benefit to it. And it was passed down to us, to our traditions. Unfortunately, again, you go to Greece now, it's not the same. But our health is suffering for it, I, I believe. All right. Um, so you say you're not against meat <clears throat> or protein in general. What about other protein no. sources like eggs, fish, um, dairy? No, I mean, dairy, to be honest with you, like milk, I am... Uh, I'm doing more research right now and I'm becoming that milk is, is definitely a, a something we should not be having regularly because the more I'm reading about it, the more I'm realizing that uh, maybe uh, drinking milk as an adult might not be the best idea. Well, could, you elaborate? Also, yeah. huh? could you elaborate on why? The yes, absolutely. Not, yeah. What they're finding is that milk, uh, cow's milk to be specific, uh, have, once we start drinking cow's milk, we increase, uh, there's more allergies for kids. Cow's milk, think about it. The milk of each animal is created for specifically for that animal. In other words, for a calf. A calf is a fast growing animal. I mean, with, well, nowadays it grows even faster, but a normal calf before the hormones and everything else, it would take around two years to reach full size. So the milk from the mother is really designed for the kind of animal. Humans, on the other hand, we take over 16 years to 20 years to reach full size. So it, and also if you look at the uh, protein content of, uh, and that's actually the interesting, I don't know if you know about this. Think about this. We need protein is a building block, right? We use protein to, to build muscle, you know, to build our cells. Uh, when do humans grow the fastest? between zero and one, first year of life. Average baby, triple in size. What is the perfect food for a baby? Human breast milk. I don't think too many people can argue against that. Now, what is the uh, average human breast milk? What percent of the calories come from protein? Less than 6%. Okay. It's really low. I think I thought it's like but, roughly 20 to 30%. I think- uh, No, actually- it's only 6%. I actually read up on it a lot because I was a little surprised myself. Because by the way, I used to teach the zone diet. So I came, I came from the higher protein. Are you familiar with the zone diet? Yeah. Yeah. So I used to teach that. So I came from that side. And because the one good habit that I got into was I always like to read things that I don't agree with. And over time, I found that I changed my mind a lot of things. I think that's the only way we grow. That's why I love having conversation with people who have completely different opinions. Because, hey, I don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. And anybody that thinks who knows everything is a fool, you know? Uh, but anyway, so the, the approach of my argument is that you, know, you look at every healthy region, most, all of them, they don't need as much animal products. And by the way, I like eggs, you know, that I have nothing against them. But I do believe that we having too much protein. And because we have constantly protein with every single meal, the body never has to go within to recycle all protein. The recycling of all, of all protein is where you get a lot of the benefits of getting rid of the misfolded proteins, the mutated cells and dysfunctional cells. So you actually could eat every five hours, if you like, and still get into autophagy by not eating animal products every five hours. I know it, it, 
Yeah, yeah, I hear what you say. Um, okay, let's go. Let's go back to milk for a moment. Um, what would you say is the main negative effects uh, of drinking milk and dairy? Is it just because it is higher in protein? I, 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 see, I don't have a strong opinion because it's something I just got into. That's something I'm researching right now as we speak. I just came across. I was reading a book, a really good book, actually. Uh, I hope I can get the book wrong. Uh, Food Sanity. And he's the, the author, Dr. Remember the guy, David. Friedman, I think his name was, uh, he was talking about milk specifically, and he had a lot of research on it. He's the first guy, and I, I read it, because up to now, I thought milk is fine. But he made some very good points as far as allergies going up, like as we drink more cow's milk. Actually, it was specifically cow's milk, by the way, because I would assume like goat's milk or sheep's milk, it might be different because, again, sheep and goat are more our size. So maybe their milk might be better for us than cow's milk. But anyways, as cow milk intake increased, so did allergies in kids. So they think there is a correlation between cow's milk. And again, I don't have a strong opinion on it. So it's something that I'm still reading and I don't know where this research is going to lead me to. But it's something that I wanted to raise awareness that it might be something that um, in the near future might be completely against. But I don't know if the author talked about this, but one of the reasons why people do get allergies when they drink cow's milk is because of this uh, cow specifically, they have an A1, A2 casein. Now the A1 tends to be a little bit more inflammatory for some people. And then the inflammation in the intestine then degrades the enzyme lactase. And that's why people actually start to become yeah. lactose intolerant, not because of the lactose, but actually because something else is causing inflammation for them. So with the goat milk and the sheep milk and, and buffalo milk and camel milk and all of the other milks, they are actually only A2 casein, which is not inflammatory. So when you look at oh, okay, uh, I know that people like to say that uh, cow's milk or milk in general, you know, it causes autism, it causes uh, brain fog, like all of these bad stuff, inflammation. Most of that can be explained because of the A1 casein, because the body can't digest it very well and it has pro-opioid effects. So anything that's pro-opioid, that can cause constipation, inflammation, brain fog, it can lower your testosterone, yeah, yeah. lots of bad stuff. So I think that's definitely something to look into that actually get rid of a lot of inflammation. So I've helped many people that they can't uh, digest cows to have problems with cow's milk. So first, one thing that I can do is actually go to an A2 only cow's milk or go and try goat milk. And most people actually respond much better to goat milk. Now, there are obviously people that still can't digest the goat milk very well. So they are best, you know, without the dairy in general. Yeah, because actually in Greece, we were raised on goat's milk, goats and sheep, we didn't have cows. So could that have played a role too? Maybe. But again, that's something that's new because right now I mainly focus because most nutritionists focus on the what to eat. My main focus is on how to eat. And I found that even those three how to eat habits really helps people improve their health greatly and lose weight and still be able to enjoy their favorite foods. Because I found that most people resist um, changing what they eat, especially all their favorite foods, and especially if they're bad for them. But I found that if I help them change the how they eat, it makes it much easier when we start tackling to what they eat, it's easier for them to change that, those behaviors. All right. So where does exercise come into this? Exercising, to me, it's crucial. But uh, we're not training athletes. And I found that a lot of trainers overtrain people. I'll give you an example. You see all these studies uh, that tell you that um, you got to do at least 20 minutes of cardio. It got to get your heart rate to 65% of your max. And, you know, I'm sure you read those studies. Well, and a lot of people buy into that. So if they only have five minutes to walk, they don't walk because they consider that a waste of the time. So oh, I got to do at least 20 minutes. Well, come to find out. Yes. The study that was saying that you got to do at least 20 minutes was done with college students, a college student in their 20s. Obviously, 20 minutes, I, can, I mean, 10 minutes, I can make any difference. When they did studies, though, with people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, one minute of aerobics, of walking, something really simple, three times a week, actually had benefits. So to me, like, you know, exercising, like the first goal of an exercise, it was, number one, an exercise program should consist of three things. Well, at least it should include three things. Something that challenges your muscles, okay? Something that takes your muscle to the full range of motion, 
and something that challenges your heart and lungs. Okay, so something cardio, stretching, and some form of resistance training. Now, where I disagree with many uh, trainers is that the first goal of an exercise program should not be results. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. And here's why I say that. Because, of course, when my clients come to me, they're like, what do you mean? I'm here to get results. What are you talking about? Well, the first goal of an exercise program is to develop the exercise habit. Once you develop the habit, that's when you push to get better results. So what I mean by that is when somebody starts, like most people intellectually understand the benefits of exercising. And yet, most people don't exercise regularly. Why is that? It's because relying on your conscious mind in order to exercise regularly. In other words, the conscious mind requires motivation. Okay, you're not going to do something automatically. You need to be motivated to go do something. Now, when I lived in Greece, we didn't even have a gym. Nobody thought about the diet. Nobody thought about exercising. And yet we were healthy. Why? Because all those things were habitual behaviors. And that's why, to me, if you want to stay consistent with your workout, you got to make it a habitual behavior so that you do it without even thinking. How do you do that? Simple. If you can repeat something long enough, eventually that something becomes habitual. How do you ensure that you repeat something long enough to make it a habit? Make it very short. So if somebody tells me I want to develop the walking habit, let's start with something simple. I tell them, from now on, as soon as you get home from work or first thing in the morning, whichever one fits better your schedule, I want you to walk for one minute. So you do that one minute, four to five times a week. Now, usually people look at me like, what the hell would one minute do? I go, it's not going to do much, I'll tell you that much. But what it will do is get you on the treadmill because you can't tell me you get home, let's say you get home from work and you're very tired. You cannot tell me that you cannot find one minute to get on the treadmill to walk. On the other hand, if I told you what's the traditional recommendations for aerobics, which is at least 20 minutes. Now you get home, you're tired or in the morning, you have to get up 20 minutes earlier. What is the chance of you doing 20 minutes? Slim to none. On the other hand, if you can get into the habit of as soon as you go home, you get on the treadmill and you do one minute. Over time, a lot of times you're not gonna stop after one minute anyway. You're gonna might maybe do two minutes and then three minutes and then five minutes. Before you know it, you got into the habit of walking right after work. And you find most of the time you're gonna end up doing a lot more than one minute anyway. That's how you develop the habit of walking. Same thing with lifting. I'll give you my personal example, because I'm probably one of the few trainers that hated training. I hated exercising. Now I haven't missed for the past, what is it, 15 years now? And the way I did it is because I had a hard time doing it, I realized I got to find a way to become consistent with exercising. And the way I did it was simple. My exercise program consists of nine exercises. But in order to go to a workout, I had to do only three. As long as I, called, I did those three exercises, I call it a day. So it was chest, back, legs, done. Everything beyond that, was optional. What would happen was even the days I didn't feel like working out because I only had to do those three exercises, I needed that much motivation. So I would do it. Now, once I get going, most of the time I end up doing everything anyway. And same thing with sets. You know, they say, tell you, you got to do three sets. Well, here is what the research is showing. 90% of the benefits of weight training comes from the first set. Another around 10% in the second set. The third set, makes less than 1% difference. Now, if you're an Olympic athlete, absolutely you should do it. But if you're an average Joe that just wants to exercise to improve their health, you're better off just starting with one set because the workout is two thirds less, easier to fit into your day, easier to stick with it long enough to make it a habit. Once you make it a habit and you really wanna see better results, by all means, do two sets, do three sets. Does it make sense though? Yeah, I like that. I like that. How long have you found that it takes for people to create that habit? It takes around three to four weeks to really start getting comfortable. Uh, because I know that they, they, say, they say it takes 21 days to create a habit. Not quite. Uh, it takes long. It takes 21 days to really become comfortable with a certain behavior. But I found that most people... Uh, if they can stick with something for over six months, you can actually say it's ingrained. You know, over six months usually is really ingrained. I guess I give you a perfect example. 
during uh, the lockdowns, I don't know if you, if you guys had lockdowns in South Africa okay. during COVID, uh, I had to close down for three months. Now, in the United States, they call it the uh, COVID-15, where people gain 15 pounds during that, the, the lockdowns. My clients, nobody gained weight. As a matter of fact, some of my clients continue losing weight, although they weren't coming in anymore, because I changed their behaviors. I changed the way that they think and, and, and behave. So although they couldn't come in, they kept up with the workouts. And to me, that's the ultimate test. Because right now, if you look, I know the statistics in South Africa, but the statistics here, only 5% of all the people who lose weight keep it off. Only 5%. Where my clients, I did an unofficial uh, survey uh, five, five, six years ago, 67% of my clients keep the weight off even after they leave me because I help them develop habits. And by the way, the only way or the best way to develop habits is to focus on one thing at a time. So instead of trying to change all your behaviors at once, I focus on changing one behavior. So let's say we start with exercising. Until you get comfortable with exercising, we're not doing anything else. We don't worry about the diet. We're not worrying about anything else. Let's get the, this going because by trying to help somebody make too many changes in their life at once, chances are they're going to get overwhelmed and quit on you, regardless of results. Yeah. So, so when you start with someone, do you immediately, uh, you know, you tell them those three rules with the diet and the exercise? How do you do, do, you now, do one step at a time? Yeah, one step at a time. First, I start with the exercise part. Obviously, if somebody, uh, how long I stay with the exercise part before I work on the diet depends on the person. If it's a person that have exercised in the past, and have some experience, might only take two weeks to get the exercise going. And then I start introducing one eating habit at a time. I will start with the six hour habit first, Monday through Friday, weekends, we don't care. And again, we're only going to move to the next habit when that person tells me uh, they, they had a consecutive, two consecutive weeks that they followed the habit perfectly and they did not struggle. Because if you struggle to follow the habit, if I add a new one, it, it's a, it's a uh, recipe for disaster. Yes, it's a much slower method, but you only have to go through it once. And that's why I work. And once you develop the habit of six hours without food, then you go to the next habit. And then go to the next habit. Once I go through the first three habits, which is the how to eat habits, I get into junk food. The next, it's like make junk food special. So if let's say they eat junk food every day, let's say they drink soda, they eat candy every day. I don't expect them to kind of cut it cold turkey. So I'll tell them, okay, so from now on, Monday and Tuesday, we're going to call it junk food free day. And until they get that down, we're not doing anything else. Once they get used to it, and then we're going to maybe include Wednesday and then, then include Thursday and then include Friday. We stop at Friday, by the way, because again, you got to enjoy yourself. And I find most of my clients, even on the weekends, on their own, they eat a lot less junk food because... There's something to be said when you know you can have it in the near future. It's easier to resist too, instead of cold turkey, you know? Yeah. What would you do for someone? Um, let's say someone wants to establish a exercise habit in the morning. So they wake up because movement first thing yeah. in the day, it really helps to entrain the circadian rhythm. And yes. for me personally, I found that it helps with stress management and those kind of good stuff. But let's say I, for example, walk and you have a client that come to you, you tell them, go walk. And they walk like 10 minutes every day for three weeks and they keep on struggling with it. Would you then switch it in for something else? How would you go about it? Well, I would try to find what aerobic exercise they like the best. So if they hate walking and you really, they're struggling with it, then I'll tell them, you want to try biking? You want to try elliptical? You want to try, find something that you not necessarily enjoy or you hate the least. You know how the whole debate about which is the best aerobics? The best aerobics is the one you will do. So if they're struggling, it could be the mindset. That's another whole conversation. It's like, are they focusing on the discomfort they're going through walking? Maybe you should focusing on why you're doing it, focusing on the benefits. But I always try to find something that they enjoy doing for aerobics. Although my belief is walking is probably the best form of aerobic that you can do for overall health. Because besides the benefits to the cardiovascular system, he has major benefits on your joints. As you know, the, the action of walking lubricates the joints. 
yeah, I love walking, but I've also found myself some mornings to wake up and it's like, why am I doing this again? And it's yeah. like, okay, I remember this is the benefits. Okay. I'm going to go for a walk. So well, you have to do it. Yeah. You know what I tell actually my clients when they first join, the first thing I have them do, it's a two things, write down 10 reasons. Why are you here? Why you want to get in shape? Why you want to lose weight? And at least 10 reasons. Then I'll write, I have them write a paragraph of where you had it. If you don't make any changes in your life, you continue as you are, make it ugly on purpose. And I have them do that in the very beginning when they're very excited, because what happens to a lot of people is they get into an exercise routine or follow some diet and then life happens. And then when life happens and all the stresses happen, you start focusing too much on the obstacles to get in your way instead of why are you doing this in the first place? So by having it written down, I tell them, look at it every night when you're going to sleep, look at it, remind yourself, why am I doing this for again? And I found, I found that technique works really well with people to help them get over the obstacles long enough to make it happen. Because again, eventually once it becomes second nature, you don't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, yeah, you have, sometimes you have to have a reminder, but usually I find that most people who can stay consistent with, with a habit for over six months, they stick with it. The only time sometimes they fall off the wagon, if it's a major change happens in their life, that could also throw a wrench in the whole thing. In other words, let's say all of a sudden your company moved you to a completely different country. You know, they completely changed your lifestyle there's a chance you might get out of those habits because now you're in a different environment. That's the only time I found that some people will get out of the habit. But if that doesn't happen, most of the time people can actually stick with it. Have you found there to be a, a most powerful reason to encourage someone to continue? Because there are some superficial reasons why people do <coughs> things. It's like, I want to start walking because I want to lose weight. And then two weeks into it, it's like, I don't care how I look anymore. You know? Yeah. So you need a deeper reason. Have you found like a, some really potent deep reasons. That's a good point you're bringing up. You need that. Now, obviously it's health, but here's the, the, the benefit though of creating habits though. You see, if you are relying on motivation to take an action, whether it's follow a diet or to exercise, you need to have reasons to stay motivated, okay? But if something becomes a habit, you really don't need that many reasons anymore. Because once it becomes a habit, it becomes part of who you are. Reasons don't come into play. Now, here's the problem with the current methods of weight loss, though. And that explains why only 5% can keep the weight off. I go on a diet because I want to lose weight. So my reason is I want to look in the mirror so I can pick up girls at the beach, right? Or if you're a girl, you want to pick up boys at the beach. So I start losing weight. Now, what happens, though, once I lose the weight? I lost my reasons to be following the diet. And that's why you see a lot of people, they lose weight initially, and then they lose, once they lose the weight, they lose also the motivation to take the actions. That is why it's essential that whatever behaviors that you engage in in order to lose weight, those behaviors become habitual. So by the time you've lost the weight, you no longer need reasons, besides remind yourself every so often, this is good for my health, uh, to stick with them. And I find most of the weight loss programs today, at least in the United States, is they're relying, because they apply change too fast, they're relying too much on motivation. And, as we, and once you lose the weight, you also lose your reasons to do something. And that's why I think so many people cannot stick with their diet or whatever exercise program that they did to lose the weight is because they lost the motivation. And most of the programs don't teach people how to develop habitual behaviors. Because everybody's in a hurry. You know, everybody wants to lose weight by tomorrow. Yeah. What would you recommend to someone exercise-wise that don't have a lot of time? Oh, I would recommend to do an exercise that involves as many muscles as, pos as possible. So I would say if I had to pick two, I would say push-ups, which you can do anywhere. And you, obviously, you know, there's modified push-ups you can do. If you cannot do a regular push-up, you can do against the furniture. And squats. So I would say is if let's say you have very limited time, you only have 10 minutes, that's it. I would tell people is do those two exercises and walk. Start with the very, very basics. And because, you know, as you know, you know, squats works all your legs. Uh, uh, the uh, push-ups 
works upper body mostly. Eh, abs engage a little bit. Uh, so whatever, pick something that engages as many muscles as possible. So when you do one exercise, you involve as many body parts as possible and start with that. Everybody has five minutes to do that. Yeah. Do you have a specific routine for that? Because I've been thinking like, uh, there's obviously a difference between how you feel if you do a low intensity versus a high intensity kind of exercise. So like I do, for example, in the morning, I go and do rollerblading with the dog. So that's like a moderate or high intensity exercise. Because you can like in the movement, do rollerblading. But then after that, I walk and I find that there are benefits. And the other people I've also talked to is that they feel different from doing a low intensity or a moderate or a high intensity. So now I'm specifically thinking to people that don't have a lot of time, like the suggestions you give, uh, the squats and the push-ups. That's great. But I don't think like if you do one set, it's going to be enough. Do you feel like you do the squats, push-ups, squats, push-ups for maybe like two to three minutes? And that should be good enough workout to kind of like, you know, get things moving. Well, the, the actually the, the aerobics that I like to do, because by, by the way, doing one set, I, I rather, I, this is what I tell people, I rather have them do it more often per week and just do one set, but do it more often. Obviously, if you, if you have time, do two sets or three sets. But as far as aerobics, what I found with not just me, by the way, research have actually proven uh, is if you have like a stationary bike or a rowing machine, or even you can sprint outside. I find short bursts of high intensity with two or three minutes complete stop, three cycles like that have similar benefits to actually doing 30 minutes of continuous aerobics of 65% of your max. There was a study, there were two studies done on that. I came up with universities did them where they took two groups of people, similar fitness level, they split them into two groups. Both did bike, a stationary bike, one group did 30 minutes of cardio, 65% of their max. The other group did 20 seconds all-out effort with three minutes complete stop, three to five cycles like that. They, both groups improved the VO2 max the same amount, although one group hardly did anything. So to me, if time is of the essence, I like, the, I guess you call it interval training. I like that, like short bursts of high intensity. And then complete rest or just a very low intensity. I wouldn't recommend that though, that type of workout for people who are just starting though. If you're not used to exercising, I would tell them start with walking, start with some simple push-ups. Once you get into it, then try that type of training. Yeah, it's definitely important to start slow when you're just getting into it. You don't want to get doms and then you know you're not gonna do it again because of the doms. So yep, yep. So what is the best way to go through the holidays without getting any weight? Well, I am again, I'm like, well, my Easter is the following week, by the way. For us, Easter is a very big feast day. We do lamb on the spit. We know you have everything. And uh, so what I tell people is when you go into a party, okay, and you know it's going to be a lot of food, go hungry. Go extra hungry. And the reason is you're going to overeat anyway. Because I know a lot of nutritionists tell people, oh, eat something before the event to control your uh, hunger. Does that control anybody? Because you're not really <laughs> eating out of hunger anyway. You're eating because the food is there. So it might as well go with an empty stomach and enjoy the party. And to me, the holidays, it's not the time to really be thinking about your diet. You be thinking about your diet the whole time you know, before it. So like me, my rule is if uh, a holiday, let's say a holiday falls during the week, there's no rules on holidays. You know, everything goes. But I found because now this is the way I am, even on the holidays, I don't go crazy. And also on the holidays, because that's when you have the worst type of foods out there. Try to be a little more careful with how you eat. In other words, if you go to a party, there's a lot of bad food. Try to eat really slow and mindful. And what you'll find when you eat slow and mindful, by the way, you're going to end up eating less food without even trying. But you still ate all, all your favorite foods without having to be uh, um, specific about what you're eating. Because a lot of times you go to holiday parties, and again, you don't have the best food. So then the only thing you, you can control is, is how you're eating the food. So slow down. Enjoy it. How do you control that desire? Because if there's a lot of pastries and cakes and whatnot, yeah. I can just imagine like, oh, I have to chew this slowly. It's going to be difficult. You know? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> well, the... It's interesting, though, is that 
the slow and mindful eating, every study ever done on that, people end up eating less food without even trying. And the reason, by the way, is simple. Think about this. When do you get pleasure from food? When the food is in your mouth. The longer you can keep each bite of food in your mouth, the more pleasure you get from less food. It's really, it's really, it's that simple. The problem today is that most people in the Western world eat mindlessly. We're eating and we're not even paying attention because we're working on the computer, we're watching TV, we're doing a thousand other, other, other things. And, and we end up, um, we go overeating because we're not paying attention to what we're eating. And in, if you look at the old cultures, people uh, ate more mindfully because you know, they sat around dinner time or lunch time. We had nice conversation. We weren't watching TV. We're not looking at our, our smart watch, I mean, smartphones and doing a thousand other things while eating. When we were eating, we were eating. So I'm trying to bring those traditions back to our culture again. And I find those three, just those first three, without changing anything about what we're eating, is enough to help people lose weight and improve their health. Slightly off topic question. Do you drink coffee? Yes. Well, one coffee a day. That's it. Cappuccino. A cappuccino. So that's a little bit of froth milk and stuff. Yes. And no sugar. <laughs> All right. It took me a while, by the way, to go to no sugar. I used to have three sugars. And then I cut it down to two. And I went down to one. And I went down to half. And for over a year, I was having half. And finally, like a couple of years ago, I made the leap and removed it. So now I actually drink coffee without sugar in it. Do you drink coffee? I do drink coffee. I used to drink uh, like four cup, cups of coffee and then I add two tablespoons of sugar. And, you know, in that stage, I was bulking. I was trying to gain muscle and I was telling myself like I need the extra calories. But yeah, sugar, it quickly adds up as empty calories. And yes. yeah, if you eat too much, you're going to gain a little bit too much weight. And that's exactly what happened. So now I'm down to black coffee most of the time <laughs> because I'm trying to lose that weight back down. <clears throat> and some milk uh, that's how i yeah. drink most of the time low fat milk a little bit of milk and um yeah but every now and again like as you mentioned it's okay to spoil yourself so now and again yes. we have some we also have a uh a, like a double shot espresso cappuccino yeah. with some extra like hazelnut syrup that tastes very good we do it about once a week uh, just as a spoil like go out um uh, do something special you know just enjoy the, the coffee somewhere else and have, have a good time so it's good to kind of like reward yourself but interestingly enough some people feel like um that rewarding yourself is actually like you're doing yourself a disservice. So some people have like opposing views to it, interestingly. Um, but I guess we don't have to dive into that. Uh, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you feel like is important to let my audience know when it comes to leaning down? No, I think, no, I, I think um, we pretty much covered the main points uh, about what I believe, like, you know, to me, uh, my belief is that there's two parts of proper nutrition. I find most nutritionists only cover part of it, which is the how is what to eat. And I believe that proper nutrition is what you eat, but also how you eat. And really quick, I don't know if are you familiar with the sumo wrestlers. Yeah. Obviously, they're very overweight and yet they're extremely healthy. Have you seen though how they eat? They eat all their food in a four-hour window. What they discovered when you overeat in one big meal, the body stores fat differently than if you took the same food and spread it throughout the day. So that's why if you look at sumo wrestlers, all their fat is underneath the skin. And, that, that, and if you look at the internal organs, are as lean as any lean person. That's why their health doesn't get affected by overeating. And that's to me part of the thing that convinced me in the sense that I should be eating less often than we do today. But how important is, uh, how should, should I phrase this? It's more so, um, what is more important? Time-restricted feeding, like intermittent fasting, or just being in general in a caloric deficit, or at least eating maintenance? I think, you, I, I think a caloric deficit, if you're not time-restricting, can backfire. I, I believe time-restricting uh, eating is more important. Uh, in other words, just simply under eating, but if you spread the food throughout the day, you might not get the same benefits if you took the same calories and you ate it within a eight hour window, six hour window, you know, but having a 16 hour break, I think that's very important. And if you look at the, there was a study done in 1946, the US military, and they took a group of men 
I can't remember how many. And they, they had given them a, a low calorie diet. Like a, uh, I think it was 1200 calories per day. And, but they fed them normal, okay? Then there was no time restrictive. Like they ate throughout the day pretty much. And what they found was that they lost 40% of their strength. They lost, I think, like 20% of their muscle. Uh, they had terrible results, basically. And, they, and some of them had to be kicked off because they just couldn't do it. And yet, if you take the same exact calories and you ate within a, let's say, four-hour window and you had this a minimum of 16 hours of break from food, they don't get the same results. Actually, people have no problem then. Interesting. Same amount of food. That's why I am for more time restrictive and obviously eating less calories. But I don't believe in counting calories either, by the way. I believe in pay attention to your body. And your body, if you learn to eat out of true hunger, eat slow and mindful. Because you got to eat mindfully in order to know when to stop eating. I believe if you do that, you'll be able to automatically eat the right amount of food, regardless of what's going on around you. Like the people that, like, in other words, if you learn those first three habits that I teach, you should be able to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and instinctively know how much to eat. That's to me is the ultimate answer to sustainable weight loss. Yeah. Uh, How you eat is really definitely so important, almost more important than what you eat, which clearly you demonstrated when you did that experiment eating McDonald's. Yeah, as long as you don't overeat and uh, that stuff's important. So uh, this is all my questions. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. For everyone listening- no, Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And for everyone listening, I will link all of your, um, the links to your uh, content, everything in the description below for you guys. So you can check them out. And again, thanks for listening. And thanks thank for joining you. me. Thank you for having me.